Part 2. Realization Strategies Lesson 1. Morning is broken. Sit a while with your Creator. I think Cat Stevens, or Yusef if you prefer, had it right. Morning has broken like the first morning. Every morning takes us back to the first morning and a relationship with the Creator that is purified and refreshed. The day is best begun by accepting an invitation from the Master of all things to spend some unhurried, undistracted time with Him. Accept the invitation and you will enjoy the provisions of that day. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to your day. Matthew 6, verse 33. Anxiety-producing compulsions are quieted in the Master's presence. The searching, striving, and struggling to get daily provision is stilled in His presence because He is the provider of all of it. Sure, you can get stuff without Him, but at what cost? Anxiety, stress, busyness? It is possible to get all the stuff without the angst. In His presence at the beginning of every day. So in this regard, here's a prescription for the realization of your God-sparked dream. Begin each day with him by remembering your ABCs. Acknowledge that he is a provider, that what we receive is simply a gift from the author of life. From start to finish, the day is his. By beginning the day with him, you proclaim that he is the one who will give you everything you need. Give us today our daily bread. Believe that he has bestowed promise upon this particular day. He has something to speak to you on this day. That promise is personal and it is specific. Receive it. Beginning this day with him provides promise for this day. Commit your day to his purpose. This commitment gets us outside of ourselves and reminds us that this day has been given to us for a purpose greater than our own pursuit. Beginning this day with him prioritizes his mission. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 16, there's a perfect illustration of this truth. God wanted to teach the children of Israel to honor him daily while they were in the wilderness so that they could live out the ABCs in the promised land. God provided food enough for every day, bread every morning, meat every evening. God's people were to gather enough for their family each day, no storing up, no hoarding. Each day, enough given and received, but just for that day. It's not difficult to recognize Israel's struggle to integrate this rhythm. Praise each day. Receive each day. We can identify with the struggle all too well. It's in our nature to want to provide for ourselves. So beginning each day with this act of acknowledging that ultimately we rely on providence, not ourselves, is not as easy as it sounds. Instead of sitting with our provider, we'll want to get to work, answer email, plan our day, check Facebook, jump in the shower, take on the day. Why not start by entrusting the day to God? Give it a try. I dare you. Lesson 2. 
Get in rhythm with your priorities, starting with Jesus. On account of my forgetfulness, my distracted nature, and my open rebellion, I need to build into my daily existence routines that direct me back to the presence and leadership of Jesus, as discussed in Lesson 9. Fortunately, there are a number of these routines. I refer to them as rhythms, because the intention is to incorporate them so deeply into my everyday life that they become second nature, like another heartbeat. The thing is, they don't come from fortune, though. They come from providence. They originate and emanate from God. They are His gifts to us. They redirect and remind. There is a flow to your day. You have grown accustomed to it over time. You carry out some of it automatically, without much thought. These rhythms allow you to preserve much-needed brain power for the decisions that will need to be made throughout your day. You only have so much space for decisions each day. This flow can be adapted as you live your life. In fact, you have already adapted it many times. There are things you do in your daily rhythms today that you did not do a year ago. There are also things you did five years ago that you're not doing today. What I am suggesting here is for you to be very intentional about including daily rhythms that help you redirect your heart and mind to the one who gave you all that you have. Your dream will not be disappointed. Okay, so how will you find time for some much-needed refreshment and realignment? There are moments as you begin, moments in the middle, and moments at the end of your day that are perfectly suited for a divine intermission. Schedule it. Build it in. Live it out. Let it become second nature. Here are some personal examples that I have included through the years. Listening prayer. Sitting in silence in order to listen to God. What is He asking you to do in that moment? Any clarity from Him on what your next move should be? When it comes across loud and clear, get up, go, and do it. Lectio Divina, or Divine Reading. This Benedictine contemplative practice allows you to listen deeply with your ear to the heart of a passage of Scripture. As it is read to you out loud multiple times, in order to discern what God is saying to you in that moment, Phrases or words will emerge that are really speaking to you in that moment. This way of reading the scriptures is almost like having a conversation with God. One at one. Send a text to yourself or have a friend check in with you via text at 1 p.m. or anytime you prefer, every day, to remind you to drop everything you're doing and pray, breathe, read a scripture passage. Memorizing scripture. Write out a passage for the week and carry it with you in a 3 by 5 card or in a note on your phone and pull it out throughout the day in order to read it. Repeat it so that it sticks in your memory. Prayer walking. This rhythm could have a double benefit. It will get you up and out of your office chair and on the move. If you're going to be walking anyway, why not walk and pray around your neighborhood or in your office building? Pray on site with insight. Read written prayers. 
morning, midday, evening, or night, stop what you're doing for a brief prayer interlude. Pick up your favorite prayer book and read the prayers. Pray them to God. Here are a couple of my favorites. Diary of Private Prayer and Everyday Prayers. Daily Examine Before you go to bed, stop and intentionally reflect on your day. Like rummaging through your day looking for God, this ancient spiritual discipline, hence the spelling of examine, E-X-A-M-E-N, can help increase your awareness of God's movement in your life so that you're better able to join Him in it. Daily examine consists of two foundational questions and three steps. I would encourage you to write your responses in a journal. Ask the two questions. Number one, God, where have I felt your presence, seen your face, heard your word this day? Number two, God, where have I ignored you, run from you, perhaps even rejected you this day? Then take some time to speak with God about what you discovered. God, I thank you for the times this day we have been together and worked together. Pray specifically as you reflect on your answers above. God, I am sorry for the ways that I have offended you by what I have done or what I did not do. Pray specifically as you reflect on your answers above. Finally, before you go to sleep, pray for your day tomorrow. God, I ask that you draw me ever closer to you this day and tomorrow so that I may recognize your presence more clearly. God, you are the God of my life. Thank you. Journal Written Prayers Stop whatever you're doing and write out a prayer to God. Sit in silence and envision sitting with Jesus and talking to him. Stop whatever you're doing and talk to Jesus about your day. What's happened so far? What is coming up? How are you doing? What thoughts are consuming you? What are you happy about? Post a scripture passage on Facebook. Drop a note to the world and share the passage that has been on your mind. This can be another helpful way to memorize scripture. Sing a hymn. Pull out your favorite hymn book and sing a favorite hymn. Try out a new one if you so desire. Play a favorite Spotify playlist. Create a few playlists of your current favorite songs, hymns, that help you fix your eyes on Jesus. Plug and play throughout your day. Commit to a weekly review. Practice Reflect and Reset. Pick a time and day of the week for this practice. Who could you ask to hold you capable? A simple text message. Did you reflect and reset last night? Here are some questions to help you reflect. What were the highlights of the past week? What are you thankful for? What are you particularly proud that you accomplished? Where did you see God in your work last week? Where did you see the fruit of your labors? Based on last week's experience, what should you do more of, less of? Where did you waste time? What didn't work out so well? Pick three questions and answer them for one week. Journal your answers. Try again for another week. You may want to try different questions to answer from the list or others you have thought of yourself. Reset. Plan your week. 
Look through your long list of to-dos, prioritize the list, and place that list on your daily calendar. I would suggest no more than three big to-dos per day. Pay attention to the meetings and recurring events during your week. Block out bigger chunks of time for bigger projects. Leave space to breathe. In fact, schedule it. Don't pack your schedule so full. Where is the realization of your dream on your calendar? Reserve some time and breath to keep the embers glowing. One of the keys to incorporating these rhythms into our lives is to learn to approach this with a loose grip. Don't be so legalistic and regimented with your faith. It's a relationship. None of these rhythms need to be set and concrete. You have the power to adapt as you go. Look at this as a grand experiment. Try some things out. If one doesn't fit, try another. Ask others who have daily rhythms with Jesus to share with you what they have tried through the years. Try out their ideas. Custom fit them. Make them your own. By similar means, you can use God-given patterns to organize your life. Daily, rotational, weekly, Sabbath, monthly, lunar, quarterly, seasonal, yearly, orbital. Within each of these five basic units, which practices, regimens, and routines can you implement that would help align your values and your actions? Without asserting this intentionality, you are more likely to be driven by the pace of life and the expectations of others. And God designed you to be led, not driven. So, what is something you want to do every day? What is something you want to do every week, every month, every quarter, every year? Of all the things you should do, what must you do? I'm talking non-negotiables. Your no-exception priorities. Write them down somewhere prominent. Write them in your planner. I'm talking about the important things, not just the urgent things. These are the priorities that preserve your life, your thinking, your creativity, your energy, your sanity. Don't allow anything to get in the way. Review these priorities relentlessly. If you're not keeping your commitment to one of them, ask yourself again if it is a non-negotiable. If it is, renew your commitment. If it isn't, drop it or change it. Determine to make sure that these no-exception priorities will be accomplished. You need to think about these non-negotiables in terms of your professional life, your relational life, your spiritual life, and your physical-emotional life. Here's a quick partial list of some of mine to get you thinking. Exercise. Time with Amy. Time with my girls. Scripture, reading, writing, retreats alone, sleep, healthy eating. Lesson three, with God's help, I can control my thinking. You are not victim to your thoughts. 
You are not helpless to endure whatever randomness enters your mind. You are not defenseless against an onslaught of debilitating self-talk. You're not a feeble-minded person. You have been created in the image of God. He has given you the capacity to manage your thoughts. Apply that truth to your thought life. You can make every thought captive to Christ. God would never instruct you to do something that you do not have the capacity to do. That's just cruel. Read 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, and ruthlessly apply Paul's words to this issue of managing your thoughts. So many times I have thought I was shackled by my thoughts. Under their chirping assault, I just endured and tried to carry on. Many of my thoughts are not helpful. They are actually impediments. But God has spoken from his sanctuary. Psalm 60, verse 6. Here's the source of the problem. Too much self-focus untempered by God-focus. One of the main culprits in our thought life is that we spend way too much energy thinking about ourselves. Isn't this the ultimate result of sin? Self-awareness is good. Self-focus, to the exclusion of all else, is deadly. O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Your thinking can be your worst enemy. Your thought life can be the greatest barrier to the realization of your dream. One must learn to rest as you realize. How do we rest? Not rest in our body per se, but rest in our thoughts. Here are some practices I have found life-giving. That is, if I actually practice them, I can't merely learn about them. I need to develop habits from them. With God's help, I can control my thinking by recalling, daily examine, rummage through your day and ask, where did I notice you today, Lord, and join you? Where did I notice you today, Lord, and not join you? If your dream has a divine spark, then the Lord will certainly be leading you, providing for you, encouraging you in your next steps. The key question for us is, will we follow his lead? I can also control my thinking by repeating. Speak truth, God's truth, out loud each time that self-defeating voice pops into your head. Give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless. With God we gain victory, and he will trample down our enemies. Psalm 60, verses 11 and 12. It is helpful to collect a few go-to phrases that you can repeat to yourself in moments of doubt. Scripture, lines of hymns, or poetry. Rhythmic one-liners are great sources of inspiration. Ask others to help you brainstorm a list. Pick your favorites, memorize them, then repeat them when that self-defeating voice pops into your head. We can also control our thinking by rejoicing. If you truly believed that God inhabits the praise of his people, how would it change your behavior? My guess would be that you would celebrate a whole lot more than you do now. Dreamers tend to keep pushing forward, on to the next task. Dissatisfaction with the status quo pushes us forward. It is incumbent upon us dreamers that we pause and build celebration into our days. Don't skip days. And if you happen to miss a day, please don't miss weeks. Build it into your rhythms to celebrate. 
You are making progress. God is blessing your pursuit. He is with you as you execute your dream. We also can control our thinking by relaxing. Learn to breathe. Learn to be mindful. Train your mind to acknowledge the plaguing thoughts and then let them go on by. And finally, releasing. Draw a circle that fills your page. In the audiobook companion PDF, draw a circle. Now, draw a circle within that circle, one that is half the diameter. Now, within the space between the two circles, write all the things in the situation you are thinking about that you cannot control. Now, inside the inner circle, write out the things you can control. Refocus your energy on the inner circle. Black out the other stuff. Seriously, for real, black it out. Or cut it out. Take scissors and trim all that excess stuff off the page. Then use the inner circle to plan how you will do something about what you can control. Fix your attention on that. So much of life is beyond our control. But there is still more than enough within our control to occupy us for the rest of our days. Is there anything from this lesson that you are willing to try? What do you have to lose? Maybe you're inhibiting thoughts. Maybe your distracted mind. Wouldn't that be nice? Just a thought. Lesson four. Chase the truth. Don't follow the feeling. I need to discipline my mind to do this. As a type four on the Enneagram, I have spent a lifetime following my feelings in any given situation. It has come naturally to me to interpret situations predominantly on the basis of my feelings. You can read more about type fours in the Enneagram in the appendix in the audiobook companion PDF. The important thing for me to remember is that it is a natural characteristic for me to interpret my feelings as fact automatically. It is not natural for me to step back and question the legitimacy of my feelings. It is vital that I do so, however. Here's why. Feelings are not facts. Situations are more than the emotions they stir up. I am more than my feelings. This may be a challenge for you, too, as you pursue your dream. All kinds of emotions will well up within you as you march on. Here are a few thoughts on putting your emotions in their proper place in regard to your dream pursuit. Investigate your emotional reactions. I have found that writing down my feelings in a two-column journal throughout the day allows me to assess them with greater clarity. I encourage you to do the same. Describe what you are feeling in the first column. Simply jot your feelings down. As they come, experience them. Recognize them. Don't wrestle with them or challenge them in the moment. Just acknowledge their reality, then move on. At the end of the day, fill in the second column. Search scripture. Search your memory banks. Write down in the second column 
any additional thoughts, feelings, and considerations related to the emotional trigger and or your emotional reaction next to the feelings you had written down earlier. So in the left-hand column, here's a couple examples. I would write emotional reaction at the top. The first example, this relationship pattern I'm experiencing with Jim will never end. I am never going to be able to change it. I'm just beating my head against the wall. Later in the day, in the right-hand column, upon further reflection as the heading, I might write this. I cannot control the pattern of Jim's response. I can control mine. What can I do differently next time? How can I change the dance? Another example, my emotional reaction in the left column might be, I am so alone. I'm up against the world. No one understands. I feel completely abandoned. Upon further reflection on the right column, God says in Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always. What methods do you use to test your feelings? You can also tell yourself the truth. What is your source of truth? Where do you turn when your emotions threaten to disrupt your composure? What's the bedrock upon which you base your worldview? For me, it is God's word. Yet how often do I search that source when confronted with an overwhelming feeling? Too often I derive truth from emotion instead of checking it against the objective truth of God. In those moments, I am prioritizing subjective truth over objective truth. It's okay to have feelings. We shouldn't suppress them or deny them. But we should challenge them, especially when they're having a negative effect on our psyche. The key to accomplishing this is putting certain measures in place before the feelings arrive. If the Word of God is your source, you will be much better prepared to tell yourself the truth by having already familiarized yourself with that truth. It's kind of like a soldier in battle. The warrior has diligently prepared and practiced the skills necessary for battle before the battle begins. I remember back when I was a college basketball player practicing before a big game against a team that brought relentless full-court pressure. We practiced all week, the five of us trying to get the ball down the court into the front court against eight teammates. When it came to the moment of truth, we were prepared. What methods are you using to prepare right now so that when you need to, you can tell yourself the truth? You can also train yourself. Enneagram type fours need to learn how to tap into the pattern of healthy type ones acting on objective principles, not subjective emotions. Often, as a four on the Enneagram, I live through my feelings. I respond and act on the basis of my emotions. Emulating type ones in this regard, I shift from wallowing in my feelings to moving forward. We must find strategies to put our feelings in their proper place. Feelings are deceptive. It is not that they are bad. In and of themselves, feelings have little meaning. It is our interpretation of them that is critical. Our interpretations of our feelings are not always rooted in truth. Fortunately, 
there are strategies you can employ to anchor yourself to the bedrock of truth. These strategies can distract us long enough so that our conditioned interpretations of our particular feelings pass by and give us a chance to deal with the situation as it is, not as it is after we project our emotions on it. Dr. Andrea Bonyar, a clinical psychologist who teaches at Georgetown University and wrote the bestseller Psychology, Essential Thinkers, Classic Theories, and How They Inform Your World, suggests seven such strategies for dealing with anxiety. Anxiety may not be an issue for you, but these strategies can help you avoid negative emotional interpretations. Two of my favorites from this post are shifting your senses and a weighted blanket. What does shifting the senses and a weighted blanket have to do with training yourself? Here are a couple of quotes from Dr. Bonyar's post to consider. Shift your senses. Are there particular smells you like? Visuals you find calming? Or specific music that can snap you out of your swirling thoughts? Even a particularly beloved type of candy or gum, if savored and used to switch the focus to the here and now, can serve as a punctuation mark, a physical reminder to stop the thought cycle and just focus on the sensation you're experiencing right in this moment. Weighted blanket. The firm pressure of a weighted blanket can bring about a feeling of safety and comfort. If you like the idea, but don't want to try that particular object, you might come up with your own way to feel cocooned through a warm and soothing bath, being held by a partner, or enveloping yourself in a series of textures that feel soft and soothing. Lesson five, train your mind via your mouth. Our thoughts bump around inside our heads until they are spoken and challenged. They cannot be considered and appraised without first being pulled out of the silence of interiority and brought into the light of day, into earshot. Not just speaking, journaling, emailing, voice recording, you get the picture. We train our minds via our mouths. Silent self-talk will stick in the psyche if it goes unchallenged. Unchallenged, self-abasing self-talk over time, at the very least, disrupts the pursuit of dreams. At worst, destroys them. Think rust, mold, barnacles. There will always be obstacles in the realization phase of putting skin and bones to your dream. Inevitably, things will get in the way. Not all will go according to plan. In order to execute, you will need to learn how to adapt. And with learning of any kind comes frustration. As you encounter these setbacks, you learn more and more about yourself. Your response to adversity, failure, and confusion is revealing. You will also discover your level of discipline, determination, and resolve to stay the course. And in this process of acquiring greater self-knowledge, you will have a lot of conversations in your head. If you are introspective at all, you'll uncover a pattern narrative of self-talk. Your pattern of self-talk may be different than mine. The same principle, however, applies to both of ours. You can train your mind by going public with your thoughts. 
One of my patterned narratives is that I beat myself up for setbacks. I also speak poorly about myself when I stumble upon something that I need to learn. For some reason, I think I should know either everything or be able to figure it out in an instant when I don't know it. Even as I type this, I realize how silly that notion is. That's what I mean by getting out of your head and expressing yourself. Allow me to get personal for a minute. In pursuit of my dream, it has become quite clear that I need to be kinder to myself. That kindness gets sparked by speaking my thoughts out loud and challenging them. There are so many things I can do in place of beating myself up. But do you see? I can neither learn those things nor implement them if I don't first make my thoughts visible and challengeable. There is always a payoff for our persistent thoughts and the behaviors that follow. So what is the payoff for beating yourself up? What is the reward for self-deprecating remarks? It's not so obvious. Dig deeper, however, and you may discover something. Stick with me here. There is a payoff, and we'll get there. Honest reflection can open the door to a new, life-transforming self-dialogue. Replace the self-defeating comments with comments that reflect a greater, more generous understanding of yourself. Exchange the default pattern with a fresh, new thought. A counselor in my early days of ministry, as you can see, this pattern has been going on for a long time, taught me to challenge negative thoughts and reaffirm the truth. What's your patterned self-talk? Our mantras seem to have become enmeshed in the fabric of our souls. But what if I told you that our mantras are old and tired and that it's time to move on? What if I said it's time to shed them, retire them, because they aren't doing you any favors? But they fit so nicely. They're so comfortable, like a comfortable pair of jeans. They just fit better. And there it is. There is something we crave about self-defeating self-talk. There is a sense of normalcy. We are used to it. And there's the payoff. Familiarity. You are a dream maker, though. That is your true identity. God has seen to it. He created and redeemed you to bless the world with your dream. So shed the destructive self-talk and move on in your pursuit. Lesson six, live life like you button a shirt. It is a ridiculous notion to put on a dress shirt and button it from the bottom up. You align the shirt from the top down, and then you button one at a time, working your way down. We would be better living our days as we button our shirt with first things first. The most important things first. Start off your day by tackling the items that are highest priority, like the rock and sand in the jar illustration. First rocks, then sand. Living your day like you button a shirt keeps you from missing tasks. Have you ever buttoned a shirt in a hurry and missed buttons? Start in the middle or from the bottom, and you will. 
It's too easy to miss buttons when the shirt isn't properly aligned from the top to bottom. If you don't start at the top, your day will be consumed with whatever contingencies arise and you will miss buttons. You will miss the important items. Living your day like you button a shirt helps you distinguish essential tasks from the extraneous. With most dress shirts, there are extra buttons at the bottom. Does anyone know what purpose these serve? Are they replacements for real buttons? I think they are, though I can't recall ever using them. If you were to use them to replace a button, how would you ever get them off? Someone just introduced me to a seam ripper. Who knew? The extra button at the bottom of the shirt isn't actually meant to be buttoned. Knowing which is the actual button and which is the extra is critical. The buttons that need to be buttoned get buttoned. Starting with first things first will ensure that you accomplish all the items you need to accomplish. Leave the extra things alone. If you are particularly effective that day, you can always deal with the extra things afterward if you have time. This may sound like a simple lesson. Well, it is. Yet how often do we push off the essential task in our day despite knowing how essential it is? The essential tasks are the ones that will help you best execute that dream. Make progress every day on your dream. If you miss a day, just make sure it doesn't turn into a week. Pick yourself up and get started again today. You have named your dream. Figure out what you need to accomplish in the next couple of weeks to move it forward. Make progress. Schedule the essentials. Leave the extras alone. Go public with your dream. Risk sharing it. Tell some people about it. Write it out. Post it. Then articulate your one-year goal. Then working backwards, put a line in the sand for 90 days out. This will help you determine what your next essential steps will be in realizing your dream. Pick out that button down and put it on with confidence. Your dream will thank you. Lesson seven, overcome procrastination with this simple fix. I understand two things. One, I am prone to distraction. Two, that doesn't exactly set me apart from others. In this age of information overload, there are more ways to distract ourselves than ever before. I am coming to understand that many of my distractions are delays. I delay accomplishing the task in front of me because I don't want to do it. I avoid another because I don't think I'm good at it. Often the it just needs to get done, however. When I procrastinate, I tell myself I am not a good time manager, that I'm lazy. If I just had more willpower. Delaying is an avoidance strategy. Instead of just doing it, I will frequently replace that task with something that gives me a mood boost. Doesn't sound so irrational, does it? Instead of knocking out that budget review, I will work on my website. In lieu of unpacking after my trip, I will surf the web looking for that item I have convinced myself that I need. 
Then, on top of not completing the task and getting it out of the way, I heap on great gobs of guilt with a negative self-talk. It is a cycle, and it's the exact opposite of productive. Unfortunately, I'm learning that this pattern is a pretty common one. There is even a free podcast devoted to procrastination. For these moments of procrastination, I have discovered a little trick that actually works. It takes a certain amount of discipline and self-coaching to initiate the trick, and that is why I think it is such a great strategy for procrastination. One of the biggest challenges for procrastinators is to get started. This trick tackles that challenge brilliantly. It gets you to drop the end results thinking and just get started by taking the next step. It's called the five-minute rule. Pick a task that you've been avoiding and commit yourself to get after it for five minutes. Just get started. That's so much more palatable than just do it, Nike's old tagline. Just start. What can I possibly get done in five minutes, you ask yourself. But that is the procrastinator talking. The voice that would at this very moment lobby for doing nothing rather than doing anything at all. Are you going to listen to that voice? Don't. So let's ask again. What can you get done in five minutes? Five minutes more work than you would have done otherwise, and often the hardest part of all. Dr. Bonior, who has worked for years in the area of cognitive behavior therapy, insists that in order for this to work well, you will need to commit to just the five minutes and then stop. You will have experienced some movement forward and felt good about that, which will leave you more willing to take another five-minute sprint the following day. Or you may have accomplished that simple task in the five minutes that you allotted. It may not have been so big and scary after all. So, just tell yourself you can do five minutes. You absolutely can. It's not nearly as scary as an hour or an all-nighter. Whether it's writing that first paragraph or just ordering the book that you're supposed to be reading, that first step truly begins the bulk of the progress in getting there. Give it a shot today when you notice the delay. When you start to pick up on your pattern of avoidance or your self-soothing replacement activity taking over, stop and say, all right, all right already. I'll get started for five minutes. Lesson eight, space matters. We are controlled by outside influences, some for good, some for ill. Distractions move us off target. Being off target over time results in loss of purpose and confused identity. Surrounded by clutter, we are ineffective. Clutter distracts. Clutter blurs. Soft focus reduces power. And we need all the power we can muster to make any real impact. The latest psychological research on clutter suggests the connection between physical and mental clutter, which contributes to a loss of positive self-identity, reduced cognition, even unhealthy eating. The space I'm talking about is physical space and mental space. Cluttered with stuff, cluttered with thoughts, same results. 
Physical clutter can hinder your ability to stay on track because excessive visual stimuli in your physical space compete for your attention. Furthermore, isn't it stressful to live in a space that you know must be cleaned and put into order at some point? The prospect of all that extra work hanging over your head? Similarly, mental clutter makes it much more difficult to filter out irrelevant information. Thoughts competing for your attention jumble your thinking. So check this out. Scrolling through an article on the psychology of clutter, I was suddenly distracted by pop-up ads. Suddenly vying for my attention were pictures of products and offers from companies I have purchased from in the past. I clicked on the ads. Now I was running down a new rabbit hole. My focus was in a completely different and unproductive spot. I just lost at least 20 minutes window shopping online. That's not even taking into consideration the extra time it took me to get back on track once I returned to the work I was supposed to be doing. Mahmoud Hanif, a marketing strategist who represents bad ad Johnny, estimates that the average internet user is served 11,250 ads per month which he bases on the number of times the software blocks a banner or pop-up. Yikes! As I sit here writing this lesson, there are no fewer than 15 different books scattered about the space next to where I am sitting. Three open journals on my desk, two shirts, a belt, and a pair of shoes from a recent road trip that haven't yet found their way back into the closet. There are two Amazon boxes, one opened that should be in the recycle bin by now, the other unopened. I have notes written on post-its on the stand next to the chair where I'm sitting. At a glance, I am reminded of what I need to bring to a leadership board meeting later this week. I have a problem. If I am to remain diligently focused on executing my dream, I will need a clutter-reducing strategy. How will I eliminate the physical clutter? How will I eliminate the mental clutter and focus on one thing at a time? One, clear your inbox. Two, clear your desk. Three, plan your day the day before. Four, use an ad-free browser or an ad-eliminating plug-in app. This will help you execute your own personal ad-stopping online reading experience. This post from the Huffington Post gives you a few options to help you begin to develop your plan. I have used Min Browser and AdBlock Plus. Five, write down your random thoughts. Write down your thoughts in a notebook so A, you won't forget them, and B, you can review them later and stop fixating on them in the present. Schedule space to come back later and review the list. And number six, Pomodoro technique. Work at one thing in front of you for 25 minutes. Do any of these ideas sound interesting enough for you to try? Pick one idea and try it. Don't try to implement all of these at once. Master one and then move on. And remember, it is not enough to know that you need to do these things to reduce clutter. You will need to be relentless in maintaining the discipline. Or like me, the clutter will creep back in 
And when it does, because it eventually will, avoid beating yourself up. Instead, go back and do what you have done in the past that has worked. Try again. You are not a victim to your cluttering ways. You can act today, right now. Lesson 9. Sound sleep matters. If you suspect that you have an undiagnosed sleep issue, please consider contacting a sleep professional and getting a consultation or sleep test. This is no small matter. The risks of untreated sleep issues are significant. The realization strategies in this part of the book will be of little help. If you do have an undiagnosed sleep disorder, you probably require greater assistance than this chapter provides. I know this from personal experience. After years of cajoling from my dear wife, Amy, who has lived with the distinct honor of nudging me every night when I stopped breathing, I finally bowed to her insistence and took a sleep test. She, along with her brother and father, promised that it would change my life. Sleep apnea is a sleep disorder that interrupts your breathing while sleeping. This enemy of sleep not only disrupts sound sleep, it also impacts the body's access to much-needed oxygen for recovery. It can lead to heart disease as well. Surgery is an option, but for my treatment, I have chosen to use a CPAP, a machine that throughout the night pushes air through your nose and or mouth, thereby providing a steady flow of oxygen to your lungs. Since that sleep test and subsequent diagnosis, I have learned much about the importance of sleep. As my sleep disorder awareness has expanded, so has my related vocabulary. Sleep debt, insomnia, acid reflux, alcohol consumption, bruxism, the grinding of teeth in one's sleep, caffeine, chocolate, daytime and nighttime sleep hygiene, naps, light exposure, waking routine, use of electronics, bedtime routine, room temperature, noise, exercise, sleep quality, and sleep quantity. I've tried sleep aids of all kinds. Yoga, meditation, natural melatonin, over-the-counter sleep medication. I am not going to spend any time here attempting to convince you why sound sleep matters. If you aren't already convinced, there are plenty of easily available scientific studies that will make the case. Instead, I'm going to share my top five sleep strategies. When executed faithfully, they help significantly. First, waking routine. Same time, same habits. Secondly, bedtime routine. Same time, same habits. No screens or electronics for at least 30 minutes prior to bed. Take some time to read or reflect on your day. Keep a thankfulness journal or daily examine. Third, elevate the head of your bed. This helps with acid reflux, which helps breathing. Four, exercise. Earlier, the better. Because you energize your body when you exercise, the later in the day you work out, the more difficult it may be to fall asleep. Fifth, Maintain your sleep environment. Clutter hurts sleep. Temperature also matters. Keep the room you sleep in on the cool side. Six, plan your tomorrow tonight. And finally, 
purge your brain. Commit to writing the old-fashioned way or digitally the thoughts that are racing through your brain. Get them out of your head before you lay it down on your pillow. In our culture, we worship work. The way we relegate everything else, even sleep, to a secondary consideration is dangerous. We try to squeeze sleep into our work-based schedules and it doesn't fit. We eliminate it altogether. I bet you may even be wondering why this topic is included in this book. Perhaps you were tempted to skip it. Who has time for sleep when pursuing a dream? There's so much to do. The importance of sleep to the human brain is well documented. Healing, cellular health, mental wellness, creativity are all impacted by sleep. Don't sleep on sleep. Consider this. The human brain is the most powerful structure on the planet. It has enabled us to build our bodies and to build skyscrapers, to build automobiles and to build spaceships, to unlock the power of technology to create the internet, and to unlock the power of our DNA to understand life. Our brains can think externally of any circumstance, analyze the past, forecast the future, and create limitless strategies to get there. Billions of brain cells are controlling every function in your body as well. It's important to understand that each brain cell is capable of doing what your whole body does. These cells eat, communicate, reproduce, and even make waste. Scientists have discovered that this process of waste removal might be one of the biggest connections to our critical need for high-quality sleep. As you work create, imagine, plan, and strategize in pursuit of your dream, your brain needs time to rest. The brain also needs to clear itself of clutter daily. So, allow it to declutter each and every day. Getting enough sound sleep is one of the biggest challenges for dreamers. We have difficulty turning our brains off. It is hard to stop thinking, analyzing, evaluating, we are processing information constantly, running through the maze of what's next. Sleep gives us the space to turn it off and recharge. Find a way to help give your brain what it needs to recalibrate for another day of pursuit. Instead of regarding sleep as an interruption to your pursuit, see it as a necessity. Your dream will thank you. Lesson 10. Busyness as an indicator of productivity is a myth. Busyness is not always a badge of honor. It may seem counterintuitive, but busyness is often evidence of a discipline deficit. The busier you are, the more intentional you must be. Once busyness is planted in our soul, it will grow and choke out any space to realize our dream. Busyness is the enemy. It is a fiend, not a friend. At this point, it is helpful to understand the three major reasons why busyness takes root in our lives. Number one, distorted identity. In our more evolved modern-day human community, the day begins in the morning. This might seem like an obvious statement. That's the point. In some cultures, the day begins with relationships in community. Ours 
begin with work. Is it any wonder that we place an inordinate amount of emphasis on what we do versus who we are? This is a harmful distortion. More and more business executives and CEOs are recognizing this reality and asking for help to change this pattern. Check out this quote from Ron Carucci in Forbes. The title says it all. Overcome compulsive busyness and find joy in being focused. We live in a world that celebrates and rewards busyness in ways that are addictive. We bounce between exhaustion and boredom, needing the next surge of activity to make us feel important, only to get burnt out, get bored, and repeat the cycle. Another reason why busyness takes root in our lives unsettled purpose. The danger of busyness is that it leads us to believe that mere activity is our purpose, busyness for the sake of being busy. So instead of focusing our work, we simply work. It leaves one feeling powerless and unproductive. Over time, this leads to an erosion of self-worth. It propels us to say yes to too many good things at the expense of great things. It compromises our ability to prioritize. Another reason that busyness takes root in our lives. Inconsistent walk with Jesus. The identity-shaping, purpose-defining leadership of Jesus should be an integral part of our life patterns. So often that connection with our Creator becomes secondary. Because of this, we are driven, not led. And you were designed by God to be led not driven. It makes sense that the God who created our lives would have something to say about how we live them. Yet how often do we seek his advice for how we live our lives? Without God leading the way, we become disoriented, distracted, and more susceptible to busyness. What misconceptions related to busyness have you embraced? Tactics to conquer busyness. Schedule your day in advance. Set aside a busyness-free block of time on a regular basis, daily, weekly, monthly, to breathe, refresh, do something that will energize you and refocus you. Call it self-care or a busyness cleanse. Just do it. Consider it a necessity and commit to it accordingly. Turn back to Lesson 20 and ensure that this busyness-free block of time is in your life rhythm. Another tactic to conquer busyness, begin your day with what's most important. Hint, it isn't checking your email or reading texts or social media. Number one, avoid distractions by using the Pomodoro or the Essington technique. The Essington glass is a time-boxing tool designed to boost productivity in a simple, elegant, and beautiful package. The Essington Method uses the Essington Glass 25-minute timer and three simple steps. Number two, turn off all distractions. Number three, turn over the glass to activate the three cues. Four, work on a single task until your time runs out. Stop complaining about how busy you are. Such complaining may come across as bragging, which is ultimately unflattering. What it essentially communicates is that you don't manage your time well. Paul writes, 
to his young pastor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. In order to overcome the strong pull toward busyness, it will require power, love, and self-discipline. These three gifts have already been given to you. Receive them. Employ them in your realization. Before we move on, how about repeating after me? Busyness is not cool. The next time you feel compelled to tell someone how busy you are, let these four words wash over you. Let's start a movement to put an end to busyness. Lesson 11. Leadership is lonely, yet I am never alone. What is it that creates loneliness? Is it not feeling abandoned? You are never alone. Listen, I am with you always, Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 20. When I complain about the loneliness of leadership, I am forgetting this promise. He will neither leave me nor forsake me. Here is my discovery, my massive aha. I rely too much on the companionship, support, encouragement, and partnership of people. I am a team player, but I can rely too much on others. Indications of this over-reliance abound. Disappointment, discouragement, and of course, loneliness. Waiting for feedback when I post something on Facebook. Compulsively checking emails or texts for responses that I deem urgent. Asking teammates to read something before I publish it. Seeking the approval of others for my thoughts and ideas and feeling paralyzed with indecision until I get them. Requiring affirmation for my dreams before I summon the courage to realize them. Desiring the blessings of others along every step in the realization process. Does any of this sound like problems you encounter in your leadership? Jesus is the cure for loneliness, self-doubt, and indecision. In short, he's the best remedy for fear. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is not some cosmic vending machine. He is not a trinket on the shelf that I dust off when I need some magical intervention. He is not an idol I pray to when I'm in a pinch. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has made his life my life. My life, his life. Do you see? If we are connected to him, we live with him, and he lives with us. He lives not only with you, but in you. Every experience, good or bad, productive or barren, happy or sad, working or resting, is your experience together in Jesus. You are not alone, ever. Living by this truth is so freeing and empowering. In your leadership, in the pursuit of your dream, in your life, one, Make sure you're not relying too much on others to get you through. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is your perfect companion on the journey. Companions share the journey, right? So talk with him in prayer about what you're experiencing in the pursuit of the dream. Rely on his counsel as he speaks to you through his word, the Bible. 
Write down your thoughts as you interact with him. Through regular and intentional time together, you will benefit from his company. Then the other relationships God provides will be a rich blessing. Two, keep provision and vision straight. Don't mingle them. Like law and gospel, distinct, they each have their own gifts to offer. Provision is any person, place, or thing that God gives to you. Those are gifts from him. He provides them to bless you on the journey, just as you are for them on theirs. Vision is the clear picture of an inspiring future in which God is pleased and glorified. It leaves you breathless and motivates you to keep going. You can see it. You can taste it. Provision is not vision. The need for approval is one of my primary challenges. Insecurity consistently pulls me off course and takes my attention off the one who gives me strength to keep pursuing the dream. Approval. I already have it. I need not waver between the opinions of men. Please allow me to make myself clear. We never pursue our dreams alone. Relationships and support from others are of tremendous importance in the realization of our dreams. Yet the point I am making in this lesson is to keep relationships in their proper perspective and to make sure that they are helping, not hindering, your dream realization. If your dream has been sent by God, there will be those in your circle of relationships that will not approve or support you. Will you stay the course and press on? Or will you shrink back? There will be those who initially resist your dream, but will return later only after they have witnessed its fulfillment. So, it is critically important that as you realize your dream, you pay particular attention to the spiritual disciplines that keep you connected to the source of that dream. The true beauty of a dream is that the pursuit of it strengthens our relationship with Jesus. Kind of like going on a road trip with a loved one you haven't seen for a while, the destination is secondary. At times, however, we focus so much on the business of realizing the dream that we leave our companion behind. In the midst of pursuing the dream, we neglect the fact that it is a journey with Jesus. More than ever, these are the times when you will need that connection with him. Rededicate yourself. Reestablish those daily rhythms of grace. Resolve to let nothing supplant them. Make them part of your core habits as you pursue your dream. Lesson 12. Unsettled leaders are unsettled for many reasons. During my sabbatical, I took some time once again to define my life's purpose. Here's the most recent iteration of my mission. I spark unsettled leaders to dream without fear and freely pursue their next. In my work with leaders in and out of the church around the country, I have noticed increasing unsettledness. I don't think this is necessarily all negative, but it is distracting. Without intervention, it is, at best, debilitating, at worst, destructive. Unsettledness affects our ability to spark dreams. Being unsettled can also take a toll on dream realization. Pursuing our dream is hard enough on its own. We make it almost impossible when we don't have clarity on our personal calling. 
If we aren't clear about who we are and what God is leading us to do next, it is utterly impossible to get there. Our identity and our focus are left up for grabs. If you do not know who you are and why you are, someone will tell you, this is your life, not theirs. God has shaped you. God has called you, set you apart for his work. And that work is not the same as everyone else's. It is unique. If you don't play your part, who will? We almost make it impossible to realize our dream when we allow others to drive our decisions and daily workflow. As ministry leaders, we hear that we are to be available to everyone at any time. True love, true compassion mandates that we let others define our days and our hours. This is not true. Watch Jesus in the Gospels as he shows his apprentices how to love. While he creates spaces for the organic moment to spring up, there is great intentionality to his movement and his mission. Without clear focus, leaders can fall victim to the demands of others. They become reactive instead of proactive. Consider John chapter 11. The events leading up to Lazarus' death are perplexing for some. Why would Jesus wait three days before he gets up and leaves? Why didn't he run to Lazarus as soon as he heard that he was seriously ill? He gives us an indication in verses 4, 14, and 15 of John chapter 11. Jesus is clear. His identity and purpose are stunningly clear. He is resolute, even in an emergency. He does not allow others to dictate his movement. He doesn't ignore Mary and Martha. He is able to place Lazarus's predicament in the context of his mission. We make it almost impossible to realize our dream when we fall into unproductive work patterns. The realization of a dream demands focus. Too many times we are diluted or distracted. We are working on too many things at once. Or we are jumping all over the place, flinching with each movement we pick up on in the periphery. Multitasking is a myth. One thing at a time. Todd Herman uses the term context switching. He describes the real cost of switching from one project to another. Ultimately, it could cost us our dream. Unsettledness is not in and of itself a bad thing. How we respond to our unsettledness is really the issue. It is imperative that we move forward and free ourselves from ruts. Keeping us in a state of unsettledness is one of the enemy's strategies to deny us our dream. Lesson 13. Stop worrying about outcomes. When we go about realizing our dreams, evaluating the choices in front of us by considering their outcomes is a dead end. Determining our actions by how they will turn out is wasted energy. There has to be a better way. Certainly, shift away from this natural calculus is a challenge. But the stakes are high. Doing so is necessary for our inner peace. Have you ever had difficulty making a decision Big or small, doesn't matter. You find yourself stuck, frozen with uncertainty. Well, it's understandable. There are no guarantees. 
We are not promised how any choice we make will turn out in the end. We are free to choose. But when we dwell on the outcomes of our potential choices, we become uneasy. Which way should I go? How should I act? What should I do? Will it work? Perhaps your anxiety is out of proportion with how much it really matters. Often, two options will ultimately lead to the same destination. I think of the times when I get so worked up about the route my wife Amy chooses to drive to an event. We're running late. I feel the pressure. She chooses a way I wouldn't. It's longer. At least, to my mind, it's longer. I would have gone the other way. Pressure builds. Anxiety stirs. Guess what? We arrive. No one seems to notice we're a couple minutes late, and we enjoy our evening. Then we return home, taking my route. When I think about all of the energy expended around moments like these, wow. Anxiety, worry, obsession, losing my composure, and all because of choices and outcomes. None of the worry helped us arrive any quicker. It only made the drive a drag for both of us. I could have shown up in a much better emotional state. I should have let go of the outcome in my mind. Both routes got us there. It made absolutely no difference which way we chose. Sometimes the inability to decide and move forward is not because we don't know what to do. We do know what we want to do. We are hesitant, though, because we're obsessing about the outcome. We want insurance. We want to know how everything will turn out. Keep in mind, that's what we want. Here's the truth. There is no way for any one of us to know with absolute certainty how a decision will turn out. As you pursue the realization of your big dream, you will be confronted with many choices. Please don't stall out trying to predict how all your decisions will turn out. Keep moving. There are many ways to get where you want to go. Examine and then execute. I would like to encourage you today to examine and execute to your advantage. Since there are no guarantees, and since you are free to decide, decide! You have nothing to lose. Look at decision-making as a grand experiment. Lean toward taking action. Don't fear failure. There is only one thing. Own your choice. Live with the consequences. Make the commitment. However it turns out, the only thing you need to concern yourself with is responsibility for your choice. After all, you will be responsible whether you like it or not. So why not charge ahead? Go for it. Stop sweating. Enjoy the ride. You can be decisive. Not only because there are many roads to the same destination, but because few of your decisions are so irrevocable that you can't go back and try something else if you fail the first time. Lesson 14. There will always be distractions. When it comes to distractions, it is not a matter of if you will battle them, but when. Utilize all possible resources to equip yourself for this battle. Be prepared. Build your habits now. Your dream depends on it. There is a cosmic reality at play here. Overcoming distractions is not merely about increased productivity or reaching your long-awaited dream. It is much deeper than that. 
The enemy of your soul is real. He's also the enemy of your dream, especially when that dream is God-given. You can call him Satan, the devil, or the evil one. He is not only the father of lies, he is also the prince of distractions. He is the king of waste. He is determined to keep you from being of service, a blessing to the world. He will have you do anything but pursue your dream. My mind has been trained over time to give in to distraction. Sound bites, text messages, and rapid-fire images have contracted our attention spans over time. It will take some practice and training to stretch them out again so that we can focus for longer stretches of time on a single topic. There is science behind distractions and how our brains work. Check out this blog post from Nautilus. In terms of changing our brains, laboratories and companies around the world are now engaged in large-scale development and research efforts directed at understanding how we can enhance our brain's functioning to improve cognitive control and thus reduce the negative impact of goal interference. Approaches include traditional education, meditation, cognitive training, video games, exposure to nature, drugs, physical exercise, neurofeedback, and brain stimulation. Interestingly, many of them use modern technology to harness neuroplasticity and induce brain changes. We are at the threshold of fascinating times as the technology that has aggravated the distracted mind is now being formulated to offer remediation. It is easier to give in to distraction than it is to stay focused. Shallow surface thinking is much easier to do than deep contemplation and introspection. We avoid the latter, it appears, because we may find out something that we do not want to know about ourselves, something that needs to change. Perhaps the command to fear not is more applicable here than anywhere else. Being alone with our thoughts can be intimidating. We are self-interrupting and not even aware of how often we are diverting our attention from our main task. We find it unsettling to be alone with our thoughts. For this reason, the rhythms I shared in Lesson 10 require us to be still and listen, to be alone with the author and shaper of our dreams. In pursuing your dream, what you are working on has cosmic significance. The deeper the significance and kingdom of God impact of your dream, the more relentless the distractions. We live in a distraction-rich environment by design. People respond like Pavlov's dogs to incoming email communication, waiting only an average of one minute and 44 seconds to open that message. Our technology continues to find new ways to attract our attention because this is what brings eyeballs and the common marketing wisdom is that eyeballs bring money. As if the notifications on our smartphones were not enough to distract us, now there are LED table lamps that light up anytime you get a notification. Yikes! The product is actually called Naughty, N-O-T-T-I. Naughty indeed. 
Pursuing your dream in today's distraction-rich environment will demand focus. In order to achieve that focus, we will have to establish some new pathways in our brains. It will be a challenge, but with wisdom, confidence, and commitment to a God-given dream, success is within your grasp. Lesson 15. Stuck? Change it up. You are free. Exercise that freedom. Give yourself permission. You've heard it said, you are perfectly designed to get the results you're currently getting. It's really simple. If you don't like the dance, change the music. If you feel stuck, try something different. Shift your morning routine. Change the exercise program. Adapt the training regimen. Try a new shampoo. Rearrange your office space. Use a different day planner. Go to a different coffee shop. Experiment with a different way of reading scripture. Utilize technology in a different way. Ask someone to help you stay accountable to the new rhythm. Do something different to prepare for worship. I talked with a friend recently who said he has dreaded going to worship for the past two years. He has young, active children. It's hard for him to get anything out of worship when he's wrangling with his little ones. The dance isn't working for him. He loves his children. They are eager to go to church. He isn't. It's hard work. So we prayed together that God would show him a creative solution that would re-engage his heart in worship. I'd like to tell you that his worship experience with his children in tow is nirvana now. It's still a struggle. But he is entering with different expectations. Instead of expecting his kids to behave a certain way, he now looks at their eagerness and attempts to affirm that eagerness by engaging them even more deeply in what they are experiencing. Don't resign yourself to being stuck. Creative solutions abound. Why not try asking him for one? Sit and listen to him. There are reasons why you're stuck. Copycatting. Maybe you are attempting to do something someone told you to do, conforming to others' expectations. Perhaps you're trying to live off of someone else's successful rhythm, and it isn't working for you any longer. Or maybe it never worked for you. Stop it. Stop copying someone else just because they told you what works for them. Find your own way. Experiment. If that doesn't work, try something else. What once worked is not working anymore. Simple, right? Something that worked for you for years is no longer motivating for you. Okay. Welcome to life. You've grown. You're a different person than you were 10 years ago, five years ago, even one year ago. You've learned things. You've discovered things about yourself. You are simply in a different stage of life. You never used to have children. Now you do. You raised your kids. Now they are out of the house. Your little children are now self-sufficient. You're older and your body isn't quite as resilient as it once was. Embrace the change and find a new way. God desires to do something new in your life. Have you ever considered that maybe your stuckness is prompted by God because he wants to show you something new? Perhaps he wants you to discover something deeper, more vibrant. You have been drinking milk. It's time to eat meat. 
See 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. Our God is a God of new things. He is always doing something new. Isaiah 43, verse 19. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. Mark chapter 2, verse 22. Sometimes the container needs to be replaced. If you have some suspicion that this might be one of the reasons why you are stuck, you can ask another person how they do what you want to do. Better yet, ask God to reveal some new container for you. Then quiet your planning mind and listen long enough for him to show you some options. Finally, pick one and give it a try. One final word of encouragement. Embrace the freedom that you've been given. We may feel stuck in each our own way, but trust that there are countless creative solutions to this general problem. So you are free to experiment. Look at every attempt as an experiment in a grand adventure. Are you burdening yourself with heavy expectations? Okay, take a deep breath and consider this lesson your permission slip, your hall pass, to get out. Try something new. Lesson 16. When you want to change, strategies are more helpful than willpower. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus spoke these words. They couldn't be any truer. We set our mind on the changes that we seek, and still it doesn't work. We run into barriers. We fail to execute. Sometimes we don't really want to change. So when we hit one of those walls, we use it as an excuse to quit. We may think that some people have what it takes to push through the barriers and others don't. Why try if you don't have the willpower? The need to change is recognized, but the change is never realized because we have already predetermined that we are not capable. We are just weak, inadequate, helpless. We are not equal to the task in front of us. A better routine will help. Human willpower needs some help. Alone, willpower fails. Distractions, discouragement, laziness, these three prey on the vulnerable human will. Willpower is a perishable resource. Rely on it alone at your own peril. So if someone knows they need to make behavior change, what is he or she supposed to do? Establish some positive momentum-building routines for yourself. I call them strategies. They get you moving in the right direction. I tend to wait for inspiration to strike before I move. A little structure and a few strategies go a long way in freeing up my creativity and helping me overcome inertia. These strategies minimize the waiting for inspiration time. Here are a few examples. Meditate for 10 minutes first thing in the morning. Memorize scripture. Call a friend. Stop and breathe. Get up and take a quick walk before getting back to work. Use the Pomodoro technique, a time management system that breaks down work into 20 or 25-minute segments interrupted by a short break. Write down all the thoughts in your head before putting your head on your pillow. Brush your teeth first thing in the morning. Reward yourself with that caffeinated beverage you love only after you have accomplished your morning routine. 
Praise God for one thing every day. Create a God box and put in it the things that are overwhelming you. Put your cell phone in another room when you sleep or when you work. Enlist a trusted friend to help you be more accountable. Don't read email until you have executed your morning routine. Develop your own go-to strategies. You'll notice that there are physical strategies and emotional strategies. The key is to experiment and see what works for you. Where do your interests lie? What do you enjoy? Do that. What seems like a chore? Don't do that. Over time, you will begin to understand what works for you and what doesn't. Pretty simple. Scrap what doesn't. Employ what does. In the post, What Mentally Strong People Do on Tough Days, from her website Positive Prescription, Dr. Samantha Boardman, a psychiatrist, writes, We all have emergency plans. If the electricity goes out, there's a stockpile of flashlights, batteries, and candles. But what happens when your mood fails? What's your bad day backup plan? It's a question I ask people all the time. Michelle Phillips, a performance coach and author of Happiness is a Habit, has a group of friends who have dubbed themselves The Village. I can call them anytime my day is going badly, and they will change my frame of mind, she says. She recalls sitting in a bar in Colorado after her divorce, feeling lonely, and she says, like I had loser written on my forehead. I called a village friend, and she said, look around. You're in Vail, skiing. She helped me shift the thinking from poor me to lucky me. In your pursuit of the dream, there will be times when you'll get stuck. Not if, mind you, but when. So do yourself a huge favor and establish some strategies for those moments. I find that when my emotions get the best of me or when I've been stationary too long, and the sloth monster threatens to overtake me, two things help me keep going. Movement and breathing. Here are a few strategies I employ. Get up and move. Do work on my walking desk. Do 10 push-ups or jumping jacks. Sit on the floor. Close my eyes and breathe deep breaths. I have also found that these are the moments when I need to drink more water. In order to activate your dream, you will need to overcome inertia. You will have bad days, slow days. Implement your strategies, devise and follow through with go-to moves that rebuild momentum and execute your plan. Lesson 17. In addressing bad habits, think replace, not remove. As you get serious about pursuing a dream, you will notice that certain long-standing habits will constitute obstacles. Over time, those habits may have created unhealthy patterns and dependencies. If progress is to be gained, if positive change is to be affected, one must deal with such habits. When we become aware of these bad habits, our first reaction is to try to eliminate them. It doesn't work. Tell me to stop doing something, and I will probably want to do it even more. 
The only way to change unhealthy habits is to replace them with healthy habits. Your day consists of a series of habits. Your life, the sum total of all the habits you developed and sustained over the years. Habits aren't all bad. In fact, they are necessary. They help us live. We rely on habits so that we do not become overwhelmed by the complexity of life. Habits allow us a break from making decisions. Understanding how habit loops work is an important piece to understanding how to change our habits from those that work against us to those that work for us. Each of your habits, bad and good, has a habit loop. In Chapter 1 of The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business, best-selling author and New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg describes a habit loop as a three-step rhythm. Cue, routine, reward. He explains, when a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. So unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines, the pattern will unfold automatically. Duig argues that our best chance of affecting change is to discover the loop and then determine where in that loop the unwanted habit is located. By the same rule, though, if we learn to create new neurological routines that overpower those behaviors, if we take control of the habit loop, we can force those bad tendencies into the background. In Chapter 3, Duhigg explains the golden rule of habit change. To change a habit, you must keep the old cue and deliver the old reward, but insert a new routine. That's the rule. If you use the same cue and provide the same reward, you can shift the routine and change the habit. Almost any behavior can be transformed if the cue and reward stay the same. Replace, not remove. Replace the routine that is stimulated by the same cue. Replace the routine that results in the same reward. Find an alternative routine. Believe that it is possible to change and include others in your journey. Here are some habit loop examples that you may want to change because they are unproductive or unhealthy. Cue. Boredom in the middle of the day. Routine, surfing the web. Reward, stimulation. Cue, driving in your car. Routine, light up a cigarette. Reward, adrenaline rush. Cue, getting home after work. Routine, turning on TV. Reward, decompress and chill. Q, stuck with writer's block in the middle of writing. Routine, checking email. Reward, a sense of connection. Ask yourself, what are my cues? What is the feeling or situation that immediately precedes the routine? Then brainstorm alternatives. 
What other activities could I do instead of the unproductive routine I am currently seeking to eliminate? Instead of surfing the web, for example, I could have a notepad next to me and I could simply doodle on it for stimulation while gathering my thoughts. Instead of sitting down and turning on the TV when I get home from work, I could open a book and read for a few minutes until I feel composed. Identifying the habit loop and replacing the routine will go a long way in helping us replace the habits that are getting in the way of our productivity and dream realization. Lesson 18. Behavioral change requires practice. Repetition over time. In pursuit of your dream, you will ultimately stumble across something in your behavior that needs to be changed. Instituting any change in behavior takes practice and patience. There is a false assumption about behavioral change in the church. I suppose this is true outside of the church as well. Many believe that they have learned something if they have heard it. They believe that believing in something is adequate. There is a difference between believing in and believing. There is a distinction between trusting in and trusting. Jesus invites us to the latter. He is not interested in merely having his followers believe in him. He invites us to put that trust into action, and that takes practice. Jesus came to earth to save us. He also came to transform us. Salvation and transformation are intertwined. So along the way, there will be times when his word, his call, will prompt us to change something. We cannot simply intellectualize the change. We need to actualize it. There is a process to behavioral change that is helpful for us to understand. The awareness of this journey toward change will grant us familiarity in uncharted waters. After all, any behavior we are motivated to change will take us into the unknown. In these instances, it is always good to have some solid footing. Read through these five stages of behavioral change and consider where you are and what your greatest need is right now. There is certainly some behavioral change you are being prompted to make as you realize your dream. Becoming aware. At some level, any behavioral change begins here. Some external influence will stimulate a thought that you really never considered before. In reading a blog post on productivity hacks, you discover a new way to begin your morning. In your inbox, you get a marketing piece on the right stretch to do first thing in the morning. A friend shares an idea about how to read the Bible. A word or phrase from your daily Bible reading grabs your attention and sparks an idea you've never thought of before. Greatest need during this stage? Be open and thoughtful as you go. Consideration. At this point, you begin to process what it might look like if you made the change. What would be different? How hard would it be? How do you do it? Who could help you? Are you really interested in making the change? Is it worth it? This is also the time when barriers and obstacles will come into play, especially if this change is prompted by God. This is when Second thoughts chime in. You might even talk yourself out of it, 
coming up with all kinds of excuses and citing all kinds of obstacles that will make it impossible to execute. Many invitations to behavioral change die here. Greatest need during this stage? Asking powerful questions. Decision. In order to make progress, we must bring to a close the consideration stage and make a decision. We have come through the tunnel of assessing our options. We have done the research. We have planned. We have asked for help. We've read up. We are now determined to make a go of it. We need to tell someone so that we are accountable. And then we must quietly resolve to move forward. Greatest need during this stage? Declare your intention. Make a commitment. Write it down. Schedule it. Share it with a friend. Make it public. Execution. We begin to implement our plan. We act. It is very important in this stage to be kind to ourselves. It might be helpful to realize that effective execution begins with practice. Give yourself space to try different things. There are a variety of approaches to making the change you want to make. Creativity isn't just allowed, it's required. One of the things that occasionally trips me up is that when I get an idea, I tend to try and adopt the change as is in its entirety. I forget that I need to adapt it. I can tweak an idea to fit my context, personality, and needs. I don't have to simply activate the change exactly the way I read about it in the blog post. Here's an example. I wanted to eat healthier. So Amy and I found a popular diet system online. We tried it for a week. Following every step and recommendation, we quickly became overwhelmed. This system was too much for us. We quit. What might have happened if we would have adapted the system? I can think for myself. I have the freedom to experiment in my execution. This takes practice. The greatest need during this stage? Practice. Act. Do. Evaluate how it is working for you. Adapt. Rinse and repeat. Persevere. If these important changes are to take root, it will take a certain amount of courage from you to maintain the behavior. The change will need to be lived out for a period of time before it becomes second nature. Not every change you decide to incorporate will stick. This is the time to evaluate whether the change was vital for the long haul or perhaps only needed for a season. Greatest need during this stage? Establish a support network. Lesson 19. I don't need a new assignment. I need to live faithfully in the positions or posts I have already been given. As an entrepreneur with an apostolic calling, I find myself drawn to starting new things. I enjoy trying and learning new things. I like the freshness that new things offer, the lack of clutter, the richness of possibility. I am also a type four on the Enneagram, someone who is excited. In this, you have a wonderfully dangerous combination. Type fours have the tendency to think that the sky is falling. Difficulties that emerge in life are rich soil for type fours to grow. Difficulties happen in any and every new endeavor. And type fours tend to place the blame for every difficulty 
on themselves. You can discover more information for Type 4s on the Enneagram. See the appendix in the audiobook companion PDF. I have learned that I tend to think that if I were in a different spot, things would automatically be better. Have you ever given in to the grass is greener concept in your own situation? In 2017, the Church at Christ Memorial gave my wife Amy and me a very precious opportunity. We took a six-month sabbatical, which gave me an opportunity to leave without leaving, so to speak. I continue to be grateful for the chance we were given to experiment and to seek God's wisdom. It was an unsettling time. After 19 years at the church, I wasn't sure that God wanted me to continue. Was he calling me to other ventures? What I learned during those six months was that he had not called me away from the local church. He actually renewed a vision for my work in Madison. He had not lifted his hand of blessing either. Even when things looked like they were not going according to my plan or my expectations, he was still working. My leadership, my skills, my insight were still needed. It appeared that I was still appreciated. It is true that God does his work and carries out his will often without us being conscious of it. That said, plenty of times he chooses to include us and use us. He is the master creator. He has made you. He has gifted you. In your baptism, he has called you. Yes, you. It is quite natural for our minds to wander when difficulties arise and doubts creep in. We wander to what seem to be greener pastures. But all too often, what appears to be an oasis turns out to be a mirage. Sometimes those extended times of difficulties and doubts mean that it is time for a change. Sometimes they are seasons in which God is pruning us for greater fruitfulness. Fruitfulness does not come without challenge. And sometimes fruitfulness will not look anything like what we think it should. God alone determines the outcome. So, how do we determine if it is time to move on or stay? Should I stay or should I go? Cue the Clash song. Am I still committed to the vision? Is there still a deep desire and passion to see that dream fulfilled? Is the vision still meaningful and relevant to the context in which I serve? Are my gifts still needed in this calling? If I don't stay and work at it, who will? Will the dream be lost? Are the challenges that I am facing in this moment a clear sign from God that my time here has come to a close, or are they instances of the Holy Spirit pruning so that I and others may grow? Are there rough edges in my character that these difficulties and doubts are meant to smooth out? Has God allowed this challenge so that I will become even more useful for Him, even more effective? These are not easy questions to answer quite the opposite. They can bring you to your knees. They can't be answered without a deep dependency on God and others. They take time and space. And that's why the sabbatical was such a blessing. Sometimes we quit too soon. Yes, even after a very long time, we can quit too soon. A little tip I would give is that if you really are unsure of whether it is time to quit, it is probably time to stick it out. Seth Godin, in his wonderful work, Dip, the little book that teaches you when to quit, lists three questions to ask before you quit. 
Number one, am I panicking? It's never a good idea to quit when you're panicking. Number two, who am I trying to influence? If there is an itch to leave, it is quite possible that it is directly related to your current attempt at influence. Make a distinction between influencing one person and a group of people, say, a market. One person will make up his mind, and if you're going to succeed, you'll have to change it. And changing someone's mind is difficult, if not impossible. If you're trying to influence a market, though, the rules are different. Most of the people in the market have never even heard of you. The market doesn't have just one mind. Influencing one person is like scaling a wall. If you get over the wall the first few tries, you're in. If you don't, often you'll find the wall gets higher with each attempt. Influencing a market, on the other hand, is more of a hill than a wall. You can make progress one step at a time. As you get higher, it actually gets easier. The third question. What sort of measurable progress am I making? Steps need to be taken toward milestones. Any forward movement is good. If you are not panicking, if you are working at influencing a market with your dream and are making even small progress toward that dream, it's probably a sign that you should hang in there. If you decide to stick with it, what you will need is some mental fortitude, toughness, willingness to explore new methodologies and angles. If we're to think of the church as a group or market target endeavor, then it would appear that today's church is full of people, pastors and non-clergy, who are too quick to flee. I would guess it is true in other group-targeted endeavors as well. Friendships, colleagues at work, business partners and associates, marriages. When things get tough, when the challenge is high and the struggle becomes real, most people check out. They quit. They run. The church is no different than the rest of the world. One of the unexpected realities in a long-tenured ministry is that you see this over and over again. Commitment, resolve, and stability are wanting. I think it is one of the greatest weaknesses in American Christianity. One final thought. The search for a new post can either be an escape strategy from a difficult mission or an opportunity for you to shift perspective or approach. Discern the motivation and discover the truth. Lesson 20. When you read Fear Not, know that God is with you. Fear is a brutal taskmaster. It keeps us from being who we were made to be and from doing what we were made to do. Fear keeps us from saying we're sorry because doing so may hurt our pride. Fear keeps us from investing because we might lose. Fear keeps us from taking a risk because it might not work out. Fear keeps us from speaking up because we might be contradicted, if not ridiculed. People might get upset or be disappointed in us. It could be that taking an action might be misinterpreted and that, as a result, we suffer unfair judgment. 
Organizations and institutions are set up based on a motivation of fear. We call them checks and balances. We're afraid someone might have too much power. Israel asked for a king like all the other nations because they were afraid they might stand out or miss out. Check out 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look how that turned out. How many budgets are set up and approved out of fear? How many situations are processed and solutioneered based on fear? Joseph was afraid to take Mary as his wife. Moses was afraid to return to Egypt. The early Christian church was afraid to welcome Gentiles as equals. The Pharisees to listen to Jesus. The disciples to leave the upper room. On and on the human reality spins. Fear lurks about. Influencing, manipulating, controlling. Fear not. Don't be afraid. These entreaties are more than a command to banish fear. They're a promise. They are the signature message that God is near. Fear not. God is near. Fear not. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, Isaiah 43, 1. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I am your God. Let nothing terrify you. I will make you strong and help you. I will protect you and save you, Isaiah 41, verse 10. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, President Roosevelt. We place so much attention on the result, on how what we might do might turn out. But we are not God. We have no idea how anything will turn out. There are zero guarantees given to us. We will never know what the result of our actions will be. Giving in to our fear in an effort to control the results is utter foolishness, isn't it? We're much better off simply letting go of the results and taking that next step we have been invited to take. Accept your finite nature and trust the infinite one who is God. That's the secret. Replacing fear with faith. When you recognize fear stirring, quickly turn to trust. Ask yourself, what is God asking me to give to him right now? What about this situation is God wanting me to hand over to his control? How would God address you right now? In the moment, stop yourself from spiraling. Assume God's supreme vantage point and complete the following statement. Fear not, I am blank. I was in the middle of a conflict with someone. It was not getting resolved. The distance was increasing. The chasm seemed too much to overcome. God was nudging me to break the silence and say that I was sorry for my part in the tension. I resisted for a long time. I was afraid I would be taken advantage of. I feared that this person would never recognize their own contribution to the problem if I admitted mine. Finally, I relented. And then, after I broke the ice, I was afraid I had made a mistake. Man, am I a creature of fear or what? I'm not an exception, am I? 
Aren't we all creatures of fear to some extent? Think about a recent instance in which you let fear get the best of you. What were you focused on? In fact, make a list of five different situations where fear reigned. Do you recognize a pattern? Identifying it coolly and calmly in retrospect will benefit you the next time the heat is turned up. Take some time in the next few days to memorize a few of your favorite promises of God's presence and provision in the scriptures. Make them personal. Tuck them away in your heart. Write them down. Carry them around so you can pull them out when you need reassurance. The next time you recognize fear rearing its ugly head, stop yourself. Turn instead to trust. Remember God's promise. Speak aloud one of your go-tos. Remind yourself that you're God's. He is sovereign. He is in control. You cannot control by giving in to fear. He's got this. He's got you. Lesson 21. The plan forward begins with one step. The next one. See if this rings true with you. The long view is overwhelming. All the changes I need to make are crushing. All the things I want to do paralyzing. The dream seems way too big and out of my reach. I'm incapacitated. It is hard to get motivated to do anything meaningful because it all seems so pointless. Look, the long view is meant to be broad, out of reach, down the line, so to speak. Its purpose is to help us set the direction, not describe the next step. The point of the big dream is to motivate, not provide the particulars of tomorrow's agenda. In order for your big dream to live, it must be broken down and divided into parts. The ultimate out-of-reach destination begins with the next step. I think that is one of the reasons why God says that we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Proverbs 16.9 I think it's one of the reasons why God says that But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand, Isaiah 32, verse 8. There is this ongoing tension in life between the dream and the execution. We must learn to be flexible and fluid in our execution because God directs our steps. The freedom and realization comes in taking the next step. We pursue the dream only by taking the next step. Your next is your ticket to progress and ultimately achievement. Figure that out and you are on your way. Someone very wise once said, do something before you do everything. Tomorrow starts today. Be who you ultimately want to be today. There is magic in today. Think about all the ways God instructs us to today. Today, this day, I'm a tomorrow person. So for me, today is not only foundationally important, but a challenge as well. There's a great clip from the movie Smoke that I use in my consulting work with Oxano. The shop owner, played by Harvey Keitel, is helping a neighbor, played by William Hurt, take a breather and appreciate the gift of awareness Tomorrow, 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 he says. Slow down? I recommend it. 
Keitel's character says this as Hurt's character is working his way through Keitel's collection of photographs of the same corner each and every morning. This whole scene illustrates the gift of being aware of the subtle differences that beg for attention today, right now. At the halfway point of my six-month sabbatical from my local church, I almost became obsessed with my re-entry plan. I was losing the benefit of today. A friend reminded me to stop and live in today. I discovered in this experience that it was really a matter of trust. My incessant focus on tomorrow was deep down a lack of confidence in God. I was trying to control the future by dwelling on it. Silly, right? Sure, but part of the human condition nevertheless. We attempt to control our future, and in the least effective way, through anxiety, worry, obsessively considering all the options and dwelling on what could be or should be, God desires that we live in the here and now. That's probably why there are so many instructions from God telling us not to worry about tomorrow, to not be anxious about anything, to cast our cares on Him. We have a relationship with the living God of the universe. One of the names given to the Messiah is Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's not God waiting for us. God is with me today. I know that he is also the God who is the same yesterday and forever, too. But don't forget today. Lesson 22. Embrace the Paradox. Everything is not on my shoulders, and everything changes when I do. Realizing our dreams will require change. Dreams usually emerge in our conscience because we are committed to see something change. Leading change contains a great paradox. Everything is not on my shoulders, and everything changes when I do. One of the greatest and most freeing realizations in my leadership life was that the ministry that I have given so much of my love, thought, and effort to can and will survive without me. If the dream is a spark from the divine, it will most certainly continue on after I am gone. On the surface, it almost seems like a contradiction coming after Lesson 19. In fact, some did see my sabbatical as quitting. He just quits when the going gets tough. It's a paradox. The lessons I have learned during this time have been so big for me. For so much of my leadership life, I have felt the weight of responsibility without the freedom of being a teammate with others. Don't misunderstand. I love my teammates. I love their input, their contribution. In fact, I have always gotten more joy out of watching others participate, lead, and succeed. Ultimately, however, I feel that I carry the burden for all of it. I fashion myself as a sojourn leader, working alongside sojourn, a fellow traveler in my position as a senior leader. It's one of my essential values, an aspirational value perhaps. Because rarely, when push comes to shove, have I been able to really share the accountability? 
The thrill of joining with others in missionary work keeps me in the game. Yet I must say that those moments have not been as frequent as I would like. They have not been the norm. The success of any dream worth pursuing cannot rest solely on the shoulders of the dreamer. Many times the pursuit of the dream is a team effort. And not just a team receiving orders from the boss and following them. For plenty of changes to endure, they must be initiated and implemented by a host of dreamers. Positions of power and influence come with a temptation. The person in charge may come to believe, the call to change anything in realizing my dream is on me. The call to pursue a dream is mine alone, and therefore it is my responsibility to get everyone else to change in order to achieve that organizational change. The kind of lasting change upon which dreams are founded cannot occur under demand or coercion. Change is a shared endeavor. Still, executive functioning is essential for some things. What can you control? Your own mindset and execution. You cannot control anyone else's. In your confusion over the bounds of your control, the burden grows and becomes overwhelming. Being clear about your role, gifts, and contributions, and making sure others are clear about theirs is the key to a well-functioning team. Self-awareness and invitation. These are the hallmarks of effective leadership. Lesson 23. My broken spaces are not to be covered up or compensated for. In pursuit of your big, divinely sparked dream, you will inevitably stumble. You will fail. You will struggle. You will run into roadblocks. You will hit walls mid-stride. You will discover your own brokenness. One of the biggest, most important realization strategies is to acknowledge your brokenness and invite Jesus to shine through the gaps. This is vital, absolutely critical. And yet, we avoid vulnerability, cover up mistakes, compensate for weakness. So this call to lay bare our brokenness deserves some elaboration. Relationships are everything. Relationships are built on trust, And there is no trust without vulnerability. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who never said, I'm sorry? Did you trust them? Were you confident at all that you too could weather the storm? God's power is made perfect in your weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, we read, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The most inspirational stories are those of struggle, No one spends time watching a story of someone overcoming nothing. There is little inspiration hearing about someone who has it all and never wants for anything. It's boring to listen to someone tell you about how everything went right for them. Why is that? 
The beautiful stories of redemption are the inspiring ones. The miraculous stories of forgiveness are the ones that give me hope. None of those stories are possible unless someone lets down their guard and reveals weakness. Contained within every overcomer story is the essence of the gospel. Dying and rising, beat down and restored, conflict and reconciliation. So then, we should allow people to see our personal weaknesses, our struggles, the brokenness within us. Because behind that and through that is the light. The key to pushing through the inevitable mistakes and setbacks that accompany the pursuit of any dream is always returning to this love of God, which is eternal, uncommon, and ultimately undeserved. At times, the pursuit is fueled by impure motivations. Not to worry. God will redirect it. Other times, our dreams are too small. Fear not. God will enlarge it. Frequently, our execution won't be effective. Have faith. God will straighten your crooked road. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. My love is imperfect. It is flawed. My love is inconsistent. It comes and goes, laced with selfish agenda. My love is illustrative. It reveals my true nature. God's love is unblemished. It is pure. God's love is unchanging. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's love is unrestrained. It is unbounded in its power and grace. As long as I return to His love, I'll be okay. If I remain focused on my own, weight and guilt will burden me. This plan will never disappoint you. It may sound simple. Believe me, it's not. Truth is, we don't always appreciate people intervening when it comes to our dreams. Even God. It is never an easy thing for a dreamer like you to surrender your dream to anyone. We will protect it with a fierceness that sometimes places us in a precarious position. Fearing a battle of wills, you will be tempted to take steps in your execution without first consulting the dream maker. But this temptation can lead to missteps and poor judgment. Our judgment and perspective is not 100% pure all the time. It can be laced with fear, self-preservation, and limited understanding. It is crucial to return to the source regularly. We must return to him in humility and honesty and with an open heart. Because whether or not we ultimately realize our dreams, they pale in comparison to God's promised love and presence. God's plan to reconcile the world to himself does not include any measure of human performance. His plan to love you does not include any measure of the performance of your dream realization strategies. While he cares about your dream, to be sure, he cares even more about you. Now, don't misunderstand. God does care about missteps and poor judgment. 
As a holy God, he cannot simply brush our errors and sins under the carpet, but his plan is executed perfectly in the performance and placement of his Son. God is aware of your faults, sins, and imperfections, and no trespass or transgression is too much for the redemption offered in his Son, Jesus. Because of this, I can move past my imperfections, the inconsistency of my love right past my missteps and poor judgment to his love. Lesson 24, Add Value. Mastermind groups are multiplying. These Facebook or similar online groups connect people who are pursuing similar dreams. I have joined some of them for guidance on processes I knew little about. I've joined them to learn how to use equipment or technology. I have joined them for simple encouragement to not give up. Realizing a dream is tough work. It's not for the faint of heart. We need each other. In all of these groups, there is a common plea. As you participate in this learning and support community, contribute, don't just take. In the self-publishing school, share, don't just ask. In the 90-day year group, share your struggles as well as your successes. Within the Flickr community, share your photos. In the Canon 5D Mark II DSLR camera group, take and share two pictures per day. I have joined a few Facebook groups related to some online training I have taken. These groups have common expectations of their members. Engage and add value. Sure, you can ask questions, but don't just take advice, get ideas, receive input. Give thoughts, share ideas, link to resources, answer questions, add value to the community. Here's the challenge for me. It takes all of my attention and then some just to keep up with the groups and with all the information that gets thrown around on these sites. They are helpful but you could lose an entire day filtering through all of the comments. These mastermind groups have helped me execute, and in the process of engaging in these communities, I have learned a valuable lesson. As I realize my dream, it can monopolize my attention. At times, I focus so much on it that I miss the God-given opportunities on the journey to engage with community and add value to the lives of those around me. The true purpose of our God-infused dreams is to bless people, right? Then let's make sure to engage along the journey. Let's add value even as we are executing. Let's not isolate ourselves from the very people we hope to influence. The mastermind groups have actually given me some opportunities to practice what I preach. Here's what I would recommend. Schedule a block of time to check in and then close it out. As you realize your dream, there's a need to designate time and space for focused work. But remember to set aside time to check in and engage with the community that is helping you on the journey. Share insights you gain through the process. Respond to questions others have about their process. Offer something that might encourage another. Schedule this time. And when the time is up, move on. Close the browser Turn off the notifications and go back to executing your plan. 
Online communities are real communities. They connect people with one another around the world. They are actually friendly, helpful, and empowering. They are a valuable resource based on give and take, receiving and contributing. Everyone has something to offer. Perhaps a church could learn a thing or two from these online communities. Contribute. Don't just take. When you are hyper-focused on realizing your dream, it is tempting to draw as much inspiration and information as possible from these communities. That is our natural M.O. I think that's why these groups are so clear at the outset about your engaging in return. You must also consider what the community means to others. You must add value for their sake. You have much to offer others as they pursue their dreams. Get in there and offer what you have. Share lessons, struggles, insights, resources. Give, don't just take. Inspire others to be courageous, resilient, determined. Share, don't withhold. Tell your story. When you are finished realizing your dream, it will be a blessing to many people. God intends to multiply your offering. But don't wait that long. Don't put it off until the dream is finally accomplished. There are opportunities to add value right now in the middle of the journey. Lesson 25. For the sake of your dream, exercise caution in your use of social media. Social media can be a helpful resource for gaining understanding and support for your dream. Yet, without some helpful boundaries, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, YouTube can be the biggest obstacle to the effective execution of your dream. Do yourself a huge favor and establish a consistent plan in managing the electronic pull before you get sucked into its dream-killing vortex. One dangerous aspect of relying on social media is that it gives us only a snapshot of reality. I acknowledge the virtue of social media. It does allow people to stay in touch with others in an incredibly convenient way, kind of like a postcard compared to a letter. It may be shallow compared to face-to-face interaction, but that's only if it's used as a substitute. Utilizing these channels as our primary place to get information about people, to stay in touch with family and friends, can actually harm or at the very least stunt those relationships. To assume you know all about your friend's trip to the Netherlands because you read a couple of posts is not a safe assumption. These modern-day inventions cannot replace good old, unhurried, conversation. Assuming we know everything we need to know or can know about any given situation based solely on a social media post has been described as the paradox effect. The paradox effect in dating is creating the illusion of having more social engagement, social capital, and popularity, but masking one's true persona. Since some are interfacing digitally more than physically, it is much easier to emotionally manipulate others because they are reliant on what I call vanity validation. The one you portray on your networks and the true you for some creates a double consciousness. Your lauded self on social media is constantly seeking more validation through electronic likes not life.
Have you noticed how quick you are to judge yourself by how quickly or how frequently people respond to or share your posts? It's a wicked addiction. Think for a moment how this will impact the pursuit of your dream. Man, I posted a couple of videos on Facebook sharing some thoughts I had been thinking about, and I only got a couple of comments and no shares. They must not be ideas worth pursuing. Suddenly, the execution of your dream has inherited another barrier. In the latest Match Singles in America studies findings on how social media has impacted people's dating lives, they found that 57% of singles say social media has generated a fear of missing out, FOMO. Dr. Susanna Flores, author of Face Hooked, How Facebook Affects Our Emotions, Relationships, and Lives, explains when someone interacts over social media for prolonged periods of time, inevitably they feel compelled to continue to check for updates. I call this the slot machine effect, in that when we receive a like or a comment to a post, or when we come across an interesting new post from someone else, we experience what psychologists refer to as intermittent reinforcement. Sometimes we get rewarded with an interesting post, and sometimes we are not. But the rewards through external validation of our posts cause us to remain digitally connected. If your engagement with social media is interfering with your pursuit of your dream, here's a quick list of remedies. Establish social media-free zones in your house, like your bedroom, living room, kitchen. The flip side of this idea is to declare one area of your house, a place where you can engage. Establish media-free times in your day, like absolutely no social media before 8 a.m. or after 8 p.m. Schedule time for social media on your calendar. Turn off your notifications on your phone. Bury your apps on page two or following on your phone or tablet. Trim your list down to friends you know well and trust. Here's another truth that will set you free. It's a simple one. Don't seek out your news on social media. Social media, perhaps all news sources, is driven by agendas. It is subjective, relative, The news it delivers to you is based on your interests and likes, and therefore, it is rarely objective. It often filters out facts, which would make it the very opposite of informative. In short, the information in your news feed should not be trusted without verification. I shared a dramatic news post on Facebook. It touched my heart, and I shared it. It then was reposted by a number of my Facebook friends. It didn't go viral, but it did spread. The next day, someone posted an article in response that the same post I sent out had been shared a couple of years ago and was proven to be false. I felt like a schmuck. I had been duped. I am smarter than that. Lesson 26. Two social media channels are enough. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, YouTube, Vimeo, Quora. Hey, I'm just getting started. For more on what's out there, 
check out Curtis Foreman's 10 Types of Social Media and How Each Can Benefit Your Business on Hootsuite, June 20th, 2017. Who could possibly keep up with all of the social media channels these days and accomplish anything else? Crazy thing is, I have used most of these channels at some point. Here's the point I want to make. Even though I have an account in almost all of these channels, I have not been able to stay up to date in all of them. I thought it would be the best idea to build my brand on every social media channel I could. But the results ran counter to my intentions. My attention became scattered and my voice diluted. I've learned that it is better to engage here, there, but definitely not everywhere. To truly benefit from social media, you need to be engaged with others in the channel where you are posting. Too many conversations on too many channels can hurt your productivity and thus diminish the value you offer on those channels. Two seems like a good number to me. Choose two. I'm thinking about this on two levels, personal and professional. Think about it. Let's say you have a Twitter account that is used mostly for personal interaction and a personal Facebook account. You match that with the same channels for professional engagement. How many more do you think you can truly master without losing your mind? May I suggest investing a little time to consider your options and to determine what will most benefit your dream? Here are some questions to consider. What's your purpose for engaging in social media? On which sites can you find the people you want to engage? Which channels best fit your personality and mode of communication? Which age groups should you be targeting with your message? Is there someone on your team to whom you could delegate to make this decision and carry out its ongoing execution? In other words, is your time better spent somewhere else? A little caveat here. If you do delegate, make sure it is someone you really trust who will represent you well and echo your voice. If you're going to cast aside what I'm saying here, at the very least, invest in some time and perhaps money to use a service that allows you to see, track, and respond to all your channels from a custom-created dashboard. I would recommend a service like Hootsuite. Evaluate which channels are getting the most engagement. Do some testing. Pay attention to what kind of posts are creating the most interaction. Recently, I noticed a much higher click-through rate with posts that were personal in nature. Another area of struggle for me has been whether or not I should allow the social channels that I primarily use to send me notifications. Push notifications may seem to be beneficial in allowing us to stay connected with those who will help our dreams become a reality, but I think that the costs they exact outweigh the benefits. The overwhelming stats tell a story. Consider this. A Deloitte study in 2016 found that people look at their phones 47 times a day on average. For young people, more like 82. Apple proudly announced in 2013 that 7.4 trillion push notifications had been pushed through its servers. The intervening four years have not reversed the trend. I concur with David Pierce in his post on Wired and would recommend disabling your push notifications. 
you can always schedule check-in times. This way of getting updates is healthier and more empowering. You should be in control of checking messages, not controlled by them, salivating with every ping. Consider this. All those notifications were never designed for your benefit. Pierce asserts, You'll discover that you don't miss the stream of cards filling your lock screen because they never existed for your benefit. Therefore, brands and developers, methods by which thirsty growth hackers can grab your attention anytime they want. Allowing an app to send you push notifications is like allowing a store clerk to grab you by the ear and drag you into their store. You're letting someone insert a commercial into your life anytime they want. Time to turn it off. Take control of your time, your thoughts, your day. To get a glimpse of how this is currently impacting you, set aside one week and keep a running list of how many times each day notifications are taking you off course. Lesson 27. Right now, edit later. If realizing your dream involves writing, then write now and edit later. Don't do both at the same time. I am guilty of editing copy and formatting while I write. Not good. Finding the perfect word or phrase or making sure the layout looks presentable has interrupted the flow of my thoughts too many times to count. If these examples of my writing challenges are not enough to convince you that writing and editing at the same time is a bad idea, then consider these reasons. Editing while you write can lead to editing before you write. I have become so accustomed to writing and editing simultaneously that there are times I never actually get started with the writing because I'm already editing in my head, second-guessing before taking the first step, scolding before allowing myself to get out of line. Writing and editing are distinct disciplines using different sides of the brain, creative and analytical, left and right, content and design, tug-of-war. Have you ever noticed that there is usually little progress in a tug-of-war? This start-and-stop, back-and-forth dance will only keep you stuck. Editing while you write is classic multitasking. Most of us don't understand that multitasking is a myth. Studies have proven time and again that we cannot multitask. If we're performing multiple tasks together, we're not doing them at the exact same time. Rather, we are quickly switching back and forth between them. Every time you stop one activity in the middle of it to do a different one, you lose time. It takes you longer to get started again. Precious time is lost. I have heard people brag about their ability to multitask. This is not a badge of honor. It is cause for concern. Besides the ineffective use of time, it is proven to be damaging for our brains and our ongoing ability to focus. Just think for a moment what cell phones, email, and text notifications, Facebook and Twitter, and stopping to check and respond to every incoming thought or conversation are doing to your productivity, to your quality and depth of thought, to your attitude and mindset. Squirrel! All day long, squirrel! Editing while you write is like the push notifications we dealt with in Lesson 14 and 26. Turn them off. Editing while you write impedes progress 
and creates frustration, which kills the urge to write. The process of writing can be a difficult challenge in and of itself. Don't compound the difficulty by stopping all the time to self-correct. When I learned to drive, my dad taught me on a stick shift. Honda Accord LX loved that car. The first attempts to drive it, well, let's just say we're not smooth. It was painful learning the rhythm of engaging the gas as I was letting my foot off the clutch. Not just painful for me either. Sometimes I killed the engine. Editing and writing at the same time is similar. You can kill the engine. In her post, Seven Ways to Stop Editing While You Work, Daphne Gray Grant shares some effective and very practical techniques on how to train your brain to write and not edit at the same time. I love this one. She writes, turn off your monitor, or at least turn off the screen brightness. Some of my clients gasp when I make this suggestion at workshops, but try it. It works. If your screen is blank, then your critical brain will have nothing to do. Note that you must be a touch typist for this to work. Otherwise, you might get a sentence like, in progress percentage, HPPF, RNY, YP, VP, R, YP, YP, exclamation point. Alternatively, you can simply hang a dish towel over your screen. Do whatever it takes to convince yourself that more careful writing will not result in a better product. Be relentless in your self-talk when you are writing. Every time you are tempted to stop and correct grammar or look for a better word or indent and bold text so that it lays out nicer, stop! Remind yourself that you are writing now and that you will edit later. Lesson 28. Hammer home your message. Dreams are never a solo act. They are realized with others who, if they are going to help you pursue it, will need to catch the excitement of it. And in order for them to catch your vision, you will need to communicate with them effectively. Drip, drip, drip. Steady, relentless, determined. Repeat. This approach was good enough for God to deliver the good news to mankind over centuries. It's good enough for me. At many times and in various ways, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. There is no if you need to be heard. What you have to say does need to be heard. Full stop. The world is blessed with your message. So, since you want to be heard, use Hebrews 1 verse 1 as a template for communicating your message. Many times, timing and repetition. Be willing to repeat. So many times we communicators stop when we think, they've already heard this. Hearing does not equal understanding, grasping, or owning. Hearing can mean in one ear and out the other. Only that which gets repeated will have a chance to stick. Various ways. Methodology and tools. 
Think of communicating as a toolbox of mediums. Written word, spoken word, stories, perspectives, images, video, posts, blogs, letters, notes, conversations, formal presentations, sermons, speeches, clips from movies, gifts, music, lyrics, poetry. Use them all. Rummage through your toolbox and pick one out. Don't expect to get it right the first time. Experiment and tinker. And right now, these last days, embody it. Live it. Be willing to share how you are living out what you are sharing. Share the positive results and the struggles. Show people how you apply your message in your own life. Remember, vulnerability equals validity. Think this way in your delivery. Omnipresent and omnipotent. Volume and value. Not just a lot of stuff, but your best stuff. Not simply quantity, but quality. Don't barrage people with noise. Inspire them with noteworthy. And here is the key thing to remember. If you want to be heard, you must be willing to be disregarded. How many times I would have gathered you to myself, but you would not, Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 37. The city who kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, Luke 13, verse 34. Yet, Jesus wrote on, If you want to be heard, you cannot linger. You cannot hold back your insight until you are assured of acceptance. You must be willing to face rejection. Think of all the great ideas that were originally rejected. The telephone, the computer, the automobile, the airplane. The gospel. Where would we be without these gifts? Frequently, those who need to hear the message many times and in various ways are themselves dreamers. As I sit here typing this lesson in my home office, I notice across the room that my light-up message board says, I believe you can do this. A message from my great encourager, Amy. Another word again from another medium, another vantage point, a message that keeps me going. Immediately to the right of that sign are a collection of 40 post-it notes I placed on the closet door, reminding me of what's most important. I glance at them occasionally, pull one off and really soak it in sometimes, early in the morning, affirming who I am apart from my dream. These are messages I need to hear again and again. Drip, drip, drip. Lesson 29. Turn the intuitive into the intentional. People will not be able to do what you do if you don't show them how to do what you do. And you will not be able to show them how if you haven't thought through each step in your process. Replication begins with clear, methodical articulation. Caveat. If you want to keep what you do a secret stored away high in a shelf so that only you can do it, then by all means skip this chapter. But if the idea of sharing what you do for the benefit of others, 
or even for the sake of your own legacy appeals to you, then please pay heed. It is almost a certainty that if your dream has been given to you by God, it will grow. At some level, your dream will demand that others participate. That's the way the kingdom of God works. Pause for a moment. Think about something that you do that you think would be valuable to pass on. Pick something. Pay particular attention to the things you do quite naturally. The things you do intuitively may not come as easily for others. Be comprehensive in your articulation. What you do is your gift to the world. It doesn't take much effort for you because you are naturally good at it. For example, over the years, writing my sermon series became intuitive. One day I fielded the question, how do you write a sermon series? And all I could offer was an ineffectual, I don't know, I just write them, I guess. A few years ago, I decided to let others in on the preaching fun. I was preparing to train our preacher's learning community to write a sermon series when I discovered that what I had been doing instinctively all these years was very difficult to explain to my guys. I had never considered how I write a sermon series. It was ironic. I had never put into words how I put my thoughts into words. I realized that I had work to do. What followed was an afternoon of me sitting down and committing to paper a careful, thoughtful, step-by-step sequencing of the steps involved in my writing process. It took a conscious decision to describe something I did intuitively so that someone else could do it deliberately. I'm glad to report that my labor bore fruit. I now share the sermon series writing privilege with others. You can do this too. Move from intuitive, instinctive, automatic to conscious, deliberate, thought out. Take something that has become intuitive and break it down. Step by step, habit by habit, ingredient by ingredient. Have fun watching others do what you do. One of the major reasons we are not seeing growth in our churches is because we are not teaching people to do what we do. Use this simple three-step formula to move from intuitive to intentional. Step one, figure out what you're doing. Identify something you have been doing for so long that it has become natural and almost effortless. Could this benefit others if you shared it? Step two, name it. In simple, concrete terms, write down each step in the process you want to share. The more intuitive the activity is for you, the more difficult it may be to describe the process. Don't be put off by that. Stay with it. Think it through. What are the steps? One, two, three. Step three. Share it. Give others the privilege of doing what you are doing. Share the opportunity with them. Paul tells young Timothy to entrust his message to reliable people in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. Let others try. Show them what you wrote down. Better yet, show them how to do it. Let them watch you. Then, 
Let them try while you watch and offer guidance. Anything can be taught using this three-step formula. Here's a rapid fire off the top of my head list. Managing finances, praying out loud, having a quiet time, engaging in conversations with strangers, riding a bike, choosing healthy foods at the grocery store, exercising, setting the table, cleaning up after dinner, reading the Bible, preaching, teaching, running a backyard VBS, video editing, worship leading, being able to recognize how God is working, prayer walking, serving in the community, sales, cooking, creating a website, recording a screencast, writing a story, playing the trumpet, overcoming fear, dreaming a big dream, and executing. Lesson 30. Love reduces distance and overcomes gripping fear. There is an intimate connection between you and your dream. Your dream is alive. Thus far, you may have discovered that fear and apathy pose the greatest obstacles in the process of realizing your dream. So, how do we move forward in pursuit of our dream when fear is a reality? Enact love. We've all experienced relational conflict. Some of us have suffered deep pain. Some of us have inflicted deep pain. Some of these injuries have been intentional, some unintentional. Doesn't matter. Pain is pain. One of the common responses to this kind of pain is to ignore it, to avoid it. But time does not heal all wounds. Absence does not always make the heart grow fonder. Sometimes it's the very opposite. I think the following equation is just as true as the platitudes. Increase distance from plus increase time away equals fear. The sum total is an ugly disposition. I doubt, I am anxious, I worry, I dread, I am apprehensive, I am uncertain, I hesitate. I exist as a nervous and skeptical person, both with God and with those from whom I am distanced. When I avoid a person or situation for an extended period, one of two things eventually will increase, fear or apathy. Fear leads to avoidance. Avoidance leads to fear. It's a vicious cycle. We steer clear of interactions in order to escape any conflict. Apathy leads to meanness. We become callous and hard, crusted over by our judgment. We turn the ones we are distanced from into monsters. The only thing that will begin to bridge that gap is to enact genuine love. The chasm will never be spanned from a distance. In order to have a chance at closing the wound, someone has to take the first step. Waiting for the other is not productive, and waiting is another instance of judgment. I wait because I know they are wrong. I wait because it is their responsibility to act in love, not mine. And so the wicked cycle continues. Meanwhile, the other party is probably thinking the same thing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And perfect love is not a feeling or sentiment or vague philosophy. It is an act.
For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 3.16 and 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. God's love is the perfect antidote to our fear. While we were far away in our fear and in our judgment, God initiated a perfect act of love. It was and is the perfect act of love. Scripture describes us as enemies of God. While we were still his enemies, he sacrificed his son. He gave his most generous gift. He took the giant step to bridge the gap. He stepped into our world knowing full well that many would reject his offer. That knowledge did not stop him. He did it anyway. He took the initiative at great risk that many would misinterpret his move. Didn't matter. He initiated anyway. And with this act of confidence, he forgave me, you, all of us. He took my place and initiated all the times I have been petrified and unmoved. He is my substitute. And it is this waterfall of grace that enables me to go and do likewise in my broken relationships with others. God's love, manifested in the perfect gift of Jesus, is the enacted love that moves me. Supernaturally, almost magically, it propels me. And he gets all the praise. It's his. It's always his. Because he has always taken the first step. And then I can simply repay in kind, moving toward him. It is not my place to worry about how my move will be interpreted or received. It is my place simply to step, because he stepped. Because of God's foundational, initiating love, I have broken the shackles of fear. Romans 8, verse 15. This is a far greater equation than the one that began this lesson. God's love for me plus his initiating move equals confidence. The sum total is a pleasing readiness. I depend on God. I am assured. I trust. I anticipate. I am bold. I am secure. I seek. I live as a composed and believing person with God and with those from whom I am distanced. Compare the two descriptions. What do you notice? Here's the most amazing revelation of this lesson. You can look at your dreams as a relationship. Reposition your dream from an inanimate thing to a person with whom you relate. Think of it as having flesh and blood. Think a moment about how fear has solidified as it pertains to your dream. Increased distance from plus increased time away has made that fear like concrete. So, as you carry on with your dream realization, don't forget to get back to the basics, which are never out of style or too elementary to revisit. God's love for you plus his initiating move is the formula to sustain the process because it will take confidence to realize your dream. Concluding thoughts. I'm a 14er. 
The title is a badge of honor given to anyone who climbs a 14,000-foot mountain peak. There are 58 14,000-foot-plus mountain peaks in the great state of Colorado, more than any other state. On a family vacation to Breckenridge, Colorado, my daughter Abby and I did some research and discovered Quandry Peak. Eight miles south of Breckenridge, Quandry is one of the 14,000-feet peaks. 14,265 feet, to be exact. We first heard of Quandry in a discussion with a local. It's a great climb for first-timers. Jumping online and reading about the trailhead, we determined to give it a try. Being in Colorado, you get the bug to hike. I'm not a hiker. Abby, on the other hand, loves it. But at this point in her young life, she had not had many opportunities to indulge the passion. We would take the journey together on a Friday. We had a couple of days to get ready, packing snacks, getting the appropriate shoes, clothes, backpacks with hydration bladders, even taking a few smaller hikes to get our bodies ready were among the items on our checklist. The excitement built as we got closer to Friday. It was increasingly difficult to sleep as we approached the day. We were both doing something we had never done before. Abby had dreamt of this for a while. The thought was new to me. We wondered, would we see mountain goats? Would it be cold at the peak? Did we have the right kind of clothes? Would we have enough time to get up and down before sunset? Were we in good enough shape? Would my knees handle the relentless pressure? What would we see? Would the weather be nice? Tossing and turning Thursday night, the pressure to try and get some sleep had the opposite effect. In spite of nervousness and doubt, we got up early on Friday morning. Pulling our gear together and looking at each other pensively, we silently kept moving forward. We were going to do this thing. It would be an adventure. We made it to the trailhead, got our stuff together, took deep breaths, and began our ascent. Ten minutes into the hike, we had to stop to catch our breath. The combination of excitement and a rapid incline had already caught up with us. We looked at each other and wondered if we were nuts. Ten minutes and we're stopping? Our research had told us that with a steady pace, it would take us four hours. What were we thinking? Should we keep going? We had some trail mix, drank some water, and carried on. On the way, we saw the tree line disappear. We saw and interacted with some awesome mountain goats, met people from Wisconsin, passed some who were slower than us, had others pass us. As we got closer, others were coming down the mountain. Everyone would say, keep going, you're almost there, it's worth it. Occasionally, we would stop to just take in the beauty, snap a few pictures, have another snack. Then we would start climbing again. Quandary provides an interesting challenge. When you are nearing the final third of the climb, you can see the peak. This is a good thing, except that it appears to be closer than it really is. The climb should come with a warning label, the opposite of the one on side mirrors. Peak appears closer than it is. We should be there by now. Why is this taking so long? Will we ever get there? Do we have enough time? This is killing me. Abby finally said something about all my sighing, eye-rolling, and moaning and groaning. 
She's so impatient sometimes. I don't know where she gets it. Climbing one boulder after another, quads burning, lungs straining, the encouragement from those descending swelled in our ears above the throbbing of our heartbeats. We were almost there. Keep going. We're going to make it. And then there it was. The peak. We had climbed our way to the top. We had reached the pinnacle. Breathtaking. We stood in complete awe. Snapped selfies posing with our arms extended to the heavens. The moment made me feel small. Yet valuable. I looked down at my cell phone and realized that I had coverage. So, vulnerability alert, I called my mother and we shared the moment. It was an emotional experience. Abby and I enjoyed lunch together at 14,265 feet. Just my sweet Abby and me. Oh, and the other 20 or so people who made up our new Quandary Peak community. Then after about an hour of taking it all in, we began our descent. What a day. I won't soon forget it. This is what it looks like to listen, trust, and envision. This is what it looks like to obey, persevere, share. Acknowledgements. Thank you to my wife, Amy, for her eternal devotion and daily support. My children, Kyla, Jonathan, Casey, Matt, Abby, and Allie, for your interest and creativity. My sweet Bailey, Emerson, and Callington for your joy and steady love. My teammates at the church in Madison for your patience, partnership, creativity, and commitment to our mission and vision. The members of the church in Madison for your patience and partnership in connecting people to life in Jesus. My coach and friend, Lynn Shaner, for her genuine interest in my life and contribution. There is no way I would be pursuing a dream like this book without her consistent encouragement. The PLI family for your willingness to experiment and risk. My colleagues at Oxano for your relentless commitment to clarity in the church. My parents, Ron and Luann Meyer, for your unconditional love and faithful witness through all my years. Amy's parents, and my second set of parents, Rich and Wendy Eckert, for accepting me and welcoming me into your awesome family, including entrusting me with the best gift of all, your daughter, my dearest Amy. My siblings on both sides, Jenny, Andy, Janelle, Donald, Steve and Vicki, Liz, Scott, and Elsa. My launch team for your insight and confidence. Dan, 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 and Dan. Crazy number of Dans, right? Bob, Alan, Greg, Larry, Paul, and Jerry for your friendship, accountability, and undying support. And the one and only dream maker for allowing me to participate and share in his dream. Recorded at Clutch Studios, Madison, Wisconsin, by Brian Liston. Fear not, dream big, and execute. 
Tools to Spark Your Dream and Ignite Your Follow-Through, a book written and narrated by Jeff Meyer. The End